Episode 268, COVID-19, After June. Action steps for hospitals, payers, employers, and pharma. Today, I speak with Marty McCary, MD, MPH. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The reaction of some hospitals and healthcare systems to the COVID-19 pandemic has been truly breathtaking. Doctors, nurses, first responders, other staff at hospitals and elsewhere have worked hard, so hard, to support the national effort. This same can be said to some tech entrepreneurs and, and other businesses who have snapped into action in order to provide PPE and artificial intelligence to the frontline healthcare workers. Today, I'm talking again with Marty McCary, MD, MPH. Dr. McCary is a surgeon at John Hopkins, professor of surgery and health policy and management at John Hopkins University, and the author of The Price We Pay and Unaccountable. So this is episode 268. In this particular episode, Dr. McCary and I discuss the situation that will likely play out after the reactive phase of this COVID-19 pandemic i.e. March, April, May. After about June, the pandemic, according to Dr. McCary, will start to wind down a bit. And at that juncture, there's going to be a backlog of patients who had their elective surgeries postponed and their care journeys potentially interrupted if they required an in-person visit or a lab test or an imaging study that did not happen. There will be a need to prioritize them, something that we have never really done in this country before. This is what we're going to talk about today, this second phase. Potential point of interest, episode 267, the one right before this episode, is about the here and now, prior to the peak, if you want to go back and listen to that when you have time. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Marty McCary, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Great to be back with you, Stacey. Let's talk about, all right, now we're in June. And let's just, for the sake of this thought experiment, suggest that exactly as you have predicted it comes true. So in June, things start winding down. But of course, this is not eradicated. It's still going to be popping up. And we still have, I'm assuming, a not back to normal. We've probably got a new normal type situation ongoing, even at that juncture. Yeah, I think in in June, when we should be okay to get back to normal life, people are going to be very timid. They're going to be scared. If there's any chance being out there could result in more transmission of a reinfection or a second wave, I'm scared. I don't want to just jump out there. And so I think when people do get out there, they're going to be timid. Now, of course, there's always those who are bold. There's always those who are young and feel indestructible. But I think it's going to take a while just to pick up the pieces again, even though the fundamentals of society should be in the clear. How will this alter, let's just say, population health? So let's just say we're talking about June, July. We're talking about the summer. We've got older people you know, those who typically have been the 5 or 20% that cost 80%, as everybody likes to throw around. What does population health start to look like for that group of individuals who may be fearful of potentially leaving their homes, but still have all the underlying conditions that they had at the start of this? 
Well, there's no doubt that people who need some basic medical care right now are not getting that care because either the care is not available or they're scared to come out for the care or they don't appreciate the severity of what they have. So, for example, I might see a patient with GI bleeding, nothing major, mild case of GI bleeding, and I'll tell them you need to get a colonoscopy to make sure it's not colon cancer, and they might just blow it off. They might not come in. Maybe the doctor doing the colonoscopy is backed up. Maybe the clinic is closed. Maybe it's donated all of its supplies to the local emergency room. Maybe it's converted the surgery center where they do the procedure into a mini temporary ICU where they can use the ventilators. Those are the situations where we've got to now start thinking about the backlog. We've got to be proactive. If you look at the entire response to this pandemic, it has been reactionary. We've not been thinking ahead. We've been scrambling to get ventilators, scrambling to get masks and gowns and gloves. It has been largely reactionary. Now, with some exceptions, some hospitals have been thinking far ahead and they've been on top of things. But by and large, we've been scrambling to react to a situation which has been vivid in clear view in Wuhan and in Italy several weeks before we started to really sound the alarm to say we've got to start getting ready. So now the next step is for us to think about all of those patients who have been on hold, who need health care, and we're coming into a healthcare system previously that functioned at full capacity or near full capacity. And now we've got a backlog that we've got to manage. How are we going to do that? And so I think we've got to start prioritizing and we've got to start thinking, okay, who do we, who do we need to get to cancer surgery first? Who needs a colonoscopy for therapeutic reasons before screening purposes? Who needs a mammogram this week and who can wait a month until other patients with suspicious lesions or early palpable masses get theirs first before those who are getting it for purely screening purposes. We've never had those algorithms before. And for the first time, we've got to think now about prioritizing which patients need to get in line first, because the reality is we simply will not have the capacity when our hospitals get back to the business of doing routine health care. When a patient calls for an appointment, there's no five-point questionnaire they have to go through where someone assesses their acuity prior to assigning them a date to come in. Do you feel like this is something, if, if we were going to give advice to some tech entrepreneurs or people who have AI algorithms to start training them to do these tasks, which are going to wind up being necessary? I like that idea, and I hope we do that. My fear is that the strongest stakeholders and, and individuals in healthcare are in a game of the survival of the fittest to get their cases going, to get their patients on the schedule, and that it is not done in a logical, sequential fashion. We've seen this, for example, with operating room wait lists. So on a typical Thursday night in a, in a hospital, there might be 10 scheduled cases that in the afternoon that need to be done and a wait list of another five cases that are on standby. Well, what do we see the doctors doing? Some places it's a civil conversation about which of the five patients need to go before the others. In other places, most places, it's a bit of a, of a dogfight. It's upcoding the level of severity of one patient or changing the name of the procedure so that it'll be seen as a shorter procedure and more likely to get on the schedule. We see gaming of the system. And my fear is that when we prioritize our next 
wave of patients that we've got to get to which we have to deliver routine care, that we might see more of that gaming of the system. And I, I'm very concerned about that. We don't do a good job of prioritizing. I was talking to a surgeon who did surgery this week, the same week the vice president called on everybody to stop all elective surgery in the United States. And I said, after that advisory, has there been any elective surgery going on? And they said, well, it all depends whether or not you would consider a pancreas cyst to be elective. I said, well, obviously that's probably not elective. 2% of the population has a cyst. We often struggle with what to do with cysts. We have criteria that are not very good in figuring out which ones we should operate so that you know we can catch some cancers and which ones we shouldn't. And most of them do not need surgery. Well, they said, well, this was benign cyst, but based on a biopsy that was a little borderline, the surgeon made the case that this case needs to go and it's urgent and it is now officially a cancer case, even though the patient did not have cancer. That is my concern is that we're not going to be prioritizing based on the logical algorithms of who needs care first, but instead who's able to get their cases on, who's able to use their clout to ensure that they get the time they need for their cohort of patients. And some hospitals do a good job with equity, but the reality is doctors are not that great at teamwork. <laughs> you know, it's highly variable. We come from a, a culture of individualism. There's an individualism bias in med school. Heck, it's in pre-med, right? The, the top whatever students get into med school. You go to med school, they rank you, and you go to residency based on ranking. And then in residency, we worship these senior physicians, and they have these individual empires, and it's an individualistic culture. Now, it's changing in some areas, like, like in ICU care, they share patients in some transplant programs, they work as teams. In some ERs, they take shift work and they work as a team well. You do see great teamwork in pockets of healthcare, but by and large, if you go to a random hospital A in America and there's two doctors that do thoracic surgery in the whole town at that hospital, there's only two doctors that do thoracic surgery in that town, chances are they hate each other's guts. And they trash talk each other and they're downplaying the other guy's options. And that, you know, unfortunately, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to even say this because I'm so proud of the medical profession. But every physician knows exactly what I'm talking about. And that's because we don't come from a culture that promotes self-awareness and communication and team building and how to work with others. We come from a culture in medicine of individualism that is promoted at every step along the way, from our grading and, and advancement system in education to our billing and payment system as a practicing physician. So if I'm a hospital exec, I know that there's technology out there which can suck in large dreams of data and makes it maybe harder. I mean, I guess if if it is a, you know, if everybody's mm -hmm. gaming the data, then I suppose it becomes harder. But if you've got a big enough data set, it becomes more difficult to do something like that. Do you see any opportunity to prioritize? Do you feel it's going to happen or do you feel there's going to be a second phase of just kind of pandemonium where the loud are winning? And those who have a relative somewhere is, are nepotistically getting the surgery. And like, that's going to be the second phase. The good news is most doctors try to do the right thing or always make their best effort to do so. And we are seeing an incredible spirit of teamwork come across this entire country 
like we haven't seen since 9-11. And people want to help others. Look, all of us in healthcare at every level, from a nurse to a physical therapist to a tech that's helping a physician at surgery, they go into the profession out of a sense of compassion. They're different from their peers. They have had their sights on a goal of doing something that is a part of something larger than themselves as something that gives them a sense of purpose. And so I think we're seeing that incredible spirit start to come out again in medicine. And we're seeing hospitals mobilize in ways that they don't have to. And we're seeing people, as I remember on 9-11, were coming into the emergency room, even though they weren't on call, to see if they could help. These were doctors, these were nurses, these were people who were not asked to come in, but they had this incredible sense of, caring for our fellow community members. And I do think we're starting to see that incredible spirit of medicine come together. You know, if you look at our history, we have an incredible heritage in the medical profession of just doing what's right. And that's been perverted recently with the payment models and and the sort of rewarding of quantity over quality. But if you look at our history, from Benjamin Rush, one of the five physicians who signed the Declaration of Independence, He was a psychiatrist. His patients couldn't even pay him, but he dedicated himself because he believed in mental illness. Jonas Salk, who created the polio vaccine, was told he should get a a patent on the vaccine. And he said, no, this will be the property of humanity so as many people can get it as possible. It will be a gift to mankind. That is our great medical heritage. And I think we're seeing now, mixed with a spirit of nationalism, this incredible rekindling with our purpose and mission of why we went into the profession at every level. Given all this, and, and now let's talk about what happens afterwards. So people start creeping out of their, their homes and, you know, they've got this condition they've had now for three months that hasn't been treated. So let's just say there's some prioritization that transpires, whether it's priority by the loudest doctor, you know, or patient or however it transpires. But, you know, we do have all of these patients who are on these high deductible plans. Hopefully, if they still are employed, we've got this worsening economy. Do you see that outcomes are going to decrease at least for the short to medium term? My hope is that insurance companies are not going to build in an increase in premiums and they're not going to increase deductibles, and they're going to hopefully reduce premiums and reduce deductibles. I'm hoping that insurance companies, because their expenditures may be decreasing during this period, will actually build it into their actuarial models and lower health insurance premiums and even lower deductibles. That is going to be key in order to enable access to the system for many who live in the high deductible plan, and they've been hammered with this financial calamity that's accompanied the pandemic. I worry about those who live paycheck to paycheck, which is 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And about half of Americans have less than $400 of cash on hand pre-COVID-19. And we've talked about this with medical bills and how that can strain individuals. But now look at this strain of your savings is markedly reduced because you had to make a decision whether or not you could afford groceries And your FMLA pay or workman's assistance only lasted two weeks or four weeks during a three-month hiatus. And people don't just come back to work the day the viral load meets a certain low point. They have to look for jobs. It's going to take time. 
And not everybody works in an, an essential service, which has been going and paying people through this entire pandemic. A lot of people are going to be stuck with major barriers to healthcare. So I would love to see insurance companies reduce those barriers. They might be able to do it with their reduced spend during the fewer number of elective procedures and elective care uh, services that they're paying for during this time. We are going to see outcomes decrease first because nobody's going to the doctor for three months unless they have got COVID. But then because nobody will be able to afford it for a while, the three-month period then starts to extend until people get back on their feet. Exactly. Do you think that maybe... Given the fact, I mean, we did just have the remote patient monitoring. I mean, that came into effect very presciently, actually, on January 1st, or maybe accidentally is the better term. <laughs> and and now we've got the, the telemedicine codes, which were just put into place. Do you think that all of this put together, including the fear of certain people to go to their physicians, you know, potentially, at least for the medium term, do you think that sustained healthcare is really going to start to focus for real on being less episodic and more about actually treating the patient to keep them healthy so that they don't have to, the flare-ups are reduced or the episodic care becomes reduced? I hope so. I do think some good things are going to come out of this pandemic. For one, I think we've taught people great personal hygiene that will last us several flu seasons to come and maybe even a future pandemic. I think we're learning that we can do things differently. Anytime there's a strain on the system, there are some things we learn. For example, during 9-11, we cleared out 50% of the elective beds at Inova Fairfax Hospital within hours. How did we do that? We realized people don't necessarily need to be hanging out in the hospital just waiting for a ride home. And so we rethought discharge planning. We rethought the necessity of hospitalizations and ICU care versus step-down care versus ward care. And in this pandemic, we're learning a couple things. We're learning about the incredible might of telemedicine. We're learning about the value of keeping those with mild or moderate symptoms out of clinics and emergency rooms. We're learning about the necessity of care. If certain services can be rendered by telemedicine, maybe that's not a bad way to go. For certain things, it may make sense. Look, I love being at the bedside. I love comforting patients. I love having that face-to-face -face interaction. It's who I am. I think I get it from my Egyptian roots. I like that face-to-face -face interaction. But if a lot of people are getting some great medical care via telemedicine, and it can be used as a screening tool to figure out who should come in to see us and whose problems can be managed without that change in our schedules and in, in the, the burdens of coming into the hospital. We may have gained a great insight from this. Telemedicine is a screening tool. It sometimes can provide definitive care, but it's often a screening tool. And guess what? Many things we can screen and manage without patients having to come in. Yeah, it's interesting because that was actually a knock on telemedicine in the early days. People would say everybody that has a telemedicine visit goes to their physician as well. So, you know, patients will have two visits, which is kind of funny <laughs> if you think about it. It is funny. It is. It's very funny. I was amused when I saw Texas make a comment that, they are planning to use more telemedicine and that they have been a leader in telemedicine. And I thought, wait a minute, Texas was the last state in the country <laughs> to authorize telemedicine because they thought 
hey, you know, you got to lay your hands on a patient and doing it by video is like heresy. It'll be interesting. I've heard several times that you can't put the telemedicine genie back in the bottle. That once patients start realizing what... I can just <laughs> call my doctor and supposed to taking a half day off of work and schlepping down there. Right. And checking into the security desk and I need your ID and wear this wristband and then navigate the map to the clinic and pay for parking. It's like for and wait an hour. It's like, okay, patients hate this system. Doctors hate this system. Why are we doing it? Hopefully what winds up coming out of this is exactly like you said, that we're actually using technology in the way that it should be used, given the place that we are in the time-space continuum here, as opposed to it being resisted for what could amount to all the wrong reasons. Technology can do a lot for healthcare. There are some things it cannot do. For example, deliver great relationship-based primary care in and of itself. Right. That is a personal relationship. There are certain things where you need that bedside conversation. You need the accountability and the rapport of seeing somebody in a community. But it can be a valuable tool to augment those relationships. You know, all of us have our vantage points in healthcare. Myself as a surgeon, you tend to think of care as episodic, as a internal medicine doctor that may develop relationships with patients or a and psychiatrist, you think of medicine more as a long-term relationship. You know, in OB, you think of risks. You're constantly managing risks and you're constantly managing malpractice risk pre- uh, concerns. So everyone has their own vantage point in healthcare. And it turns out that everybody's right. It's just that everybody's looking at it from their point of view. If we can learn some lessons from this pandemic about the appropriateness of care, about relationships with patients, we'll have a better healthcare system for it. So let's talk about pharmacies. What does the situation look like coming out of this for pharmacies? Pharmacy is a really interesting case study because we decided sort of in our our national pride that we know how to deliver uh, medications better than the traditional system. We applied corporate medicine principles to pharmacies. And we started to see the scale out of pharmacies that no longer really did the home deliveries or the crushing medications so people could take them better. And all the things that family and independent pharmacies were doing for decades, some of these pharmacists were actually, they were actually clinical pharmacists. That is, they were doing some basic diagnosis and treatments based on their licensure. And so you had community pharmacists My grandfather was one of them, doing great local care. And then we decided, you know what, we can corporatize this stuff and we can scale it, forget about customizing certain things, forget about trying to offer the lowest price point as a fiduciary or in an open free market. We scaled pharmacies, we merged them with PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers. So now we're looking at a system that is not meeting the needs of of patients And we're wondering, hey, maybe there was some value to some of those classic services. Maybe there was some value to a clinical pharmacist practicing clinical pharmacy. Maybe there's some value to spending time and counseling patients on medication, something that's difficult to do in these retail pharmacies. So I hope we do learn some lessons here. I think 
One lesson is you can't have some of these companies run like Wall Street institutions that report to shareholders and start tightening things as much as possible to maximize a margin because what they are doing is Wall Street reaps the benefits while local communities bear the risk. And I do worry now that if these companies have trouble surviving, the local independent pharmacies that they've bought out are not going to be replaced. And so we do have a situation where Wall Street and investors have are reaping benefits where local communities are bearing the risk of those investments. Yeah, Vikas, I was talking to Vikas Sani from the Lown Institute, who does the Shkreli Awards. Yeah. And he said something very similar. You know, he said venture capitalists or anybody in finance, you know, private equity, what they're looking for is returns. Like that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for patient outcomes. So it's it's an inherent conflict. And the halo of healthcare can enable a shield for these individuals to kind of do their thing at the expense of, of patients, he put it. Mm-hmm. Let's summarize what we've got going on here. If I'm a hospital executive and I'm looking three months out, five months out, six months out, what should I be doing here? Is there a way that we can summarize this? Once they have built that capacity to the maximum of their ability, they need to come up with a way to prioritize those who need medical care once the COVID patients are treated appropriately. That is, once they get more capacity for patients, they need to think about what to prioritize. Obviously, they should be prioritizing somebody with breast cancer over somebody who needs breast augmentation for cosmetic surgery. They've got to start doing all of this stuff, and I hope they don't leave it to the Wild West of letting doctors post whatever cases on a first-come, first-served basis. We're going to need some civility to make sure that patients get treated fairly and that they get prioritized. You know, I don't, we've never done this before. We've never asked ourselves, what would take priority? A cataract surgery in someone who's about to go blind or removal of a pancreatic cancer with a, a low chance of long-term survival or somebody who has a seizure disorder who needs an operation to manage that. We've never really thought through some of these algorithms before. And once we answer our capacity question and build capacity to the maximum of our ability, we've got to start talking about prioritization of medical care. Yeah, in a way that should be going on right now. Mm -hmm. Because people are already in line. People are in line right now. Yeah, and it's not the kind of conversation that you're going to be able to have, you know, Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Dr. Marty McCary, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Great to be with you, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.